Hello and welcome to Systematically. We're still doing our uh, Apocalypse Editions, so thanks for listening. If you haven't listened to our episode with Eric Vanden Eichel talking about apocalyptic literature yet, please go check that out. Uh, also out by now should be uh, our discussion with Ann Carpenter about Apocalypse in Hansars von Balthasar's Theodrama 4. Uh, that conversation is awesome. You should go listen to that. But today we have a very special treat. It's me and it's Robin. Hi, Robin. Hello. And we have as our guests, our moms. Hi, moms. Hi, John. Uh, so it, the, the thing about Robin and I is that we both uh, have... Uh, we have moms. Like, we have moms. Who knew? It's amazing. <laughs> uh, but our moms also happen to be medical professionals. Um, and so uh, would you both uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do uh, professionally? And then we want to talk uh, a little bit about decision making uh, in a medical context and, and some specific theological and spiritual concerns that come with that. Um, but in any case, first, uh, please, uh, how, about, how about my mom first? Um, hi, um, I uh, have been a nurse for, my name's Patty, and I've been a nurse for 40 years. My background is uh, kind of checkered from the health professional side in that I spent five years in acute care and then left stating I would flip pancakes at Denny's before I ever stepped in a hospital again. And many years went by, and then I began doing palliative care for a, a large hospital system here in California in the inpatient side. And uh, then eventually I developed a program for palliative care in the emergency room for a population which was um, really weighted on the over 80 crowd. And um, I've been doing that for about six years. And there you go. My name's Brenda and I'm Robin's mom. I have been a physician for 35 years, uh, initially family practice. And there I had a older population and came to really enjoy uh, end of life care and joined the local palliative team 20 years ago now. I left my family practice shortly thereafter and have done mainly palliative care ever since, although I did also function for a while as physician at a geriatric day hospital and for a few years did some very uh, light uh, GP oncology part-time with our local cancer clinic. Uh, I don't want to dive into the heavy stuff right away, but um, could, could one or both of you say a little bit about what palliative care is? That may not be a term people are familiar with. <laughs> So, so that's a very touchy subject in the world of palliative care because no one knows what that means. Um, our, our, our organization changed it to supportive care. Um, and really what it means is we walk alongside people who have life-limiting diseases, meaning diseases that can end your life. Uh, our main uh, drive is to... Uh, make sure that the patient's goals of their medical care are in alignment with their medical plan. That's in a nutshell. Anything you'd add to that, Brenda? Um, not really. It grew out of a need for good end-of-life care in cancer patients in Britain in the 60s and has evolved every decade to look different than the decade before. But I would absolutely agree. This is about people who have uh, life-limiting medical issues, and we try to improve quality of life and help them make the decisions that serve them best while supporting them uh, symptomatically, but as well uh, emotionally and even spiritually through the time they have left. Great. Thank you. So, um, and we'll, we'll get into the nitty-gritty of all that in just a minute, but uh, since, you know, weighty topic, uh, we'll do, as we customarily do, a bit of frivolity. Um, so, Robin, you're chief officer of frivolity around here. What are we doing today? Well, today, John, for frivolity, um, we really got to take advantage of the fact that we've got moms on the show, you know? And one thing moms know is lots of embarrassing stories about us. Oh, boy. And so, for today's frivolity, uh, your mom is going to tell an embarrassing story about you. 
and then my mom is going to tell an embarrassing story about me. So, uh, all right, mom, so let me have it. Take it away. Uh, my, my favorite is uh, Jonathan was about 20 months old and the Olympics were on, uh, Winter Olympics. And Jonathan thought the speed skaters. And so he asked for something that looked like a speed skater. So I gave him some burgundy pantyhose, which he put on. And a, a it, was the late, it was the late 80s, everybody. <laughs> uh, yes. And uh, Jonathan uh, had the perfect stance of speed skating in the living room. That was the beginning of Jonathan's dressing up years. Then it was Superman, and then it was Zorro, and then it was Batman. And I don't know who he is today, but I'm absolutely sure he's still dressing up in character when he goes to work. 100% true. <laughs> Maybe he's still got those burgundy panties, you know, or like pantyhose under all of his uh, pants when he goes to work. Give him superpowers in the class. I spend, I spend just a fortune on anti-static uh, sprays. <laughs> spend so much money on that stuff just cases and cases of it it's terrible wool pants and pantyhose it's rough uh that's amazing thank you mom yeah i i, I had the arm swing and everything from what i'm told yes you did dear yeah whole thing a terrific mimic i've been faking it ever since <laughs> right, i have uh, a story about robin uh that maybe isn't quite so amusing, but I think will resonate with everybody who's been listening to her in these podcasts. Robin and her twin brother were in a French immersion class in elementary school. There was actually two different classes. And the teacher in the other class was getting frustrated by his students' minimal verbal responses when he asked a question. So he asked Robin's teacher if he could borrow her for a few minutes and took her into the front of his classroom and asked her a question, uh, which she answered on and on <laughs> and on. <laughs> and when she finished, he looked at the class and said, see, when I ask you a question, I don't want just one word. <laughs> <laughs> and so, Robin, have you been talking endlessly ever since? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. It's it's when Robin and I get going, it's hard to get a word in edgewise. Mm -hmm. Like fish slice. <laughs> For you Flanders and Swan fans out there. Yes, all one of you in our listenership. We have dozens, dozens of listeners total. Yeah, but, so there's got to the be one But the overlap between our listeners and people who know Flanders and Swan have got to be fairly small, <laughs> though they have come up a number of times on the podcast. That's before. true. Maybe someone's Googled. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> so... Well, those are both delightful. Thank you. Um, well, Robin, uh, you had a kind of run of show there, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand it to you in terms of uh, asking questions to start us off. Yeah, for sure. So um, as, uh, as everyone knows, um, we're releasing shows again because we're all at home. Um, oh, we sure are. And suddenly have a, a lot of extra time and small children on our hands, which is why John's hiding out in his closet right now. Bathroom door's locked. Um, but uh, due to the fact that there is, uh, as the WHO has stated, a global pandemic. So today, with, our, uh, with the help of our moms, we want to talk a little bit um, about kind of decision, you know, serious medical decision making um, in a time of crisis. And so um, not only kind of what kinds of decisions might you face for yourself or for relatives in the weeks ahead, um, but also why it's important to talk about these sorts of things before you have a crisis and not while you're in a crisis. Um, and maybe even a few tips on how to have these conversations because they can be difficult to have and they're emotionally weighty. No one likes thinking about the fact that they or their parents or their grandparents or their children or, or whatever it happens to be could become seriously ill and maybe even die. Um, and so kind of we're going to talk about what kinds of decisions why it's important and then we're going to move on for kind of hopefully what's the majority of the show to talk really about how do you make these decisions and um uh, because it's a theology podcast we're also going to be talking um from the christian tradition a little bit and how do we approach these sorts of decisions specifically as christians so to start us off i'm basically gonna ask uh, um our moms some questions about 
things that we're hearing in the news or what things are um, and that sort of thing. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is that um, when people become really ill with the coronavirus, when they get the um, admitted to hospital of COVID-19, one of the things we're hearing a lot about is ventilator. And I'm wondering if um, one of you, maybe uh, we can start with, uh, with Brenda, can tell us what a ventilator is and why people get put on it. So a ventilator is a piece of medical equipment that helps people breathe. And it can be used for a number of different breathing problems. So in something like ALS that causes muscle weakness, uh, then sometimes ventilators are used to support just the uh, ability for the chest wall and the diaphragm to expand and let more air in and then to go out again. But more, much more commonly, ventilators are used in people whose lungs are very compromised by disease in the tissues of the lung that are responsible for getting oxygen into your bloodstream and carbon dioxide out of your bloodstream. So if you think of all that tissue that's trying to do that, and then it becomes inflamed and maybe kind of covered in pus, and we won't get too uh, descriptive about that, but basically the lung tissue just can't work well. So if you can increase the oxygen levels, uh, that helps. So you'll often see people with pneumonia who have to wear oxygen by nasal prongs or by mouth in their hospital bed. But there comes a point where that isn't enough to compensate for the failing lungs. And so by using a ventilator, you can get more oxygen into the lungs in a more effective manner. The person has to have a tube placed down into their main airway. and I'm sure we've all seen pictures of people with a tube sticking out of their mouth. And sometimes you'll see a tube sticking out of their throat, just kind of above uh, their collarbones, uh, that is for long-term use of a ventilator. This then uh, completely fills up the airway. They have a little uh, cuff there and expand it so that no air gets bypassed. Um, and then you essentially can pump the air in and out of the lungs to more effectively get oxygen in. Uh, when this is done through the mouth, then the person can't swallow and they can't talk. Generally, it's used uh, when people think that there is some uh, future time that the patient will be better and that their lungs will improve so that they can then discontinue the ventilator. Um, perfect. Um, I just have one more question for people because in case they're confused about it. So if someone's on a ventilator and they need it to breathe, can they still die? They can absolutely still die. And many people do. It doesn't keep your heart going. It doesn't keep your kidneys going. It doesn't uh, solve many other issues that cause us to die. So yes, you absolutely can still die even though you're on the ventilator. Thanks. Mom, I'm wondering, um, Patty, so if, if someone in your family or you yourself get really sick with COVID-19 and you go to the hospital, what kind of decisions are you going to have to make? Um, I think first and foremost, you have to, number one, come to grips with the fact that we're finite and that no matter what our age is, that we may be facing um, death um, or some, somewhere in between and facing the fact that we need ventilator support. Um, and then it becomes the question of uh, how long do we want to be on that ventilator? And how are other organ systems working? So, you know, your mom talked about the fact that you can die on a ventilator because if your heart isn't working or your kidneys are starting to fail or your liver is starting to fail, then it becomes this cascading um, uh, failure of your organs. And so uh, and then, then you're really facing uh, the next level of care, which are central lines and blood pressure medicines and, and, and really getting into that, what we call extra critical care in our facility. I think you have to 
I think we all have to talk about how far would we want to go in um, walking down that road of intensive uh, care. I, I can say for myself that um, I would say two weeks on event uh, and when to the point they would have to do a trach, depending upon my liver function, my kidney function, and my heart, I think then I would want my family to make a decision about letting me go. Uh, and while, and, and I don't even like using the word that my family has to make the decision. The key in all of this is that, as you said before, is to have this discussion before you get sick. And I tell my patients, you know, the best gift you can ever give your child is to ask them what their wishes are for end of life, to tell them exactly what you want and, and not be vague about it because then you're not letting the decision come on their shoulders. They're just simply following your wishes. There's a big difference. And so, thank you. And so maybe, um, Mom, can you continue, Wayne, a little bit on why it's so important to have these discussions? So in palliative care, usually people have warning because they have a, um, a you know, some sort of life-limiting illness or terminal diagnosis. And something like the coronavirus, lots of people don't even know if they're going to get sick. Um, so, you know, they might just think that this isn't a conversation they need to be having. Um, can you talk a little bit about why it's important to have these discussions before people are sick, even if they won't necessarily get sick? It is really important that people have these discussions ahead of time. It's also a bit more difficult when you're having the discussion ahead of time because you don't know what the particular situation will be at the time. But with COVID, we have a little bit better idea of what people would be facing. And I think it's a good uh, kind of doorway into the bigger discussion of what you would want to be aggressively treated and what you would want to have uh, simply comfort care uh, initiated for you. And so with something like COVID where you get sick quickly uh, and in other situations like a stroke where you're sick quickly, you're often too ill to have the discussion by the time you actually uh, get a good assessment and figure out what's going on. So although it's difficult for people that aren't in the medical field to kind of wrap their head around, uh, I think then it's really important for people to have some uh, basic conversations that you have an idea of where to go from if the doctor comes up to you and says, what did your dad say about what he wanted in this kind of situation? Because most people have never discussed it. Um, and like Patty said, for those of us in the medical field, more of us have considered, if I had to go on a ventilator, what kind of factors would make me choose? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. What kind of factors would make me think, I don't think that's a good idea at all. And so there's always going to be some leeway in it. Um, and I think uh, the initial question to uh, a family member is if they thought that they could make you better and bring you back from this, what would you want? If they thought that they could probably tide you over and get rid of the COVID, but you would probably end up in a far more compromised situation than you are now. What would you want if the doc, you know, are there any specific things that you would say if the doctor says that's going to be my life going forward after I get as good as I'm going to get, then I'm not really looking at, at stepping forward for that aggressive care. So it is difficult for people to really wrap their head around, but I think those are the things they should be thinking about. Have you got any comments on that, Patty? Um, you know, I, I think one of the things that was most profound for me when I entered palliative care was the word disease trajectory and outcome. So a disease trajectory is basically the pathway a disease will take on your body. And um, in some uh, diseases like, uh, say, let's just say lung disease, um, 
uh, with uh, COPD, smokers, lung kind of thing, or asthma, where it becomes more and more progressive, your oxygen needs um, continue to rise and you become uh, more and more desperate for air, we can kind of take you down the path and tell you what it's going to be like. I, I think with COVID, and I, I'm beginning to hear the question on uh, the news is, what does it look like? What are the different steps of the disease and how does it affect my lungs? How does it affect the rest of my body? And, and you know, and where can it leave me? Can it leave me so I can get through the bad patch and, and be where I was before? Or am I going to be bed bound? Am I going to be on dialysis? Am I going to be on a ventilator forever? So um, I think uh, there have been a few articles talking about the pathophysiology of COVID. And I, I think that's important. I, I think we underestimate lay people to that, that they wouldn't understand such a thing. But um, I think there are words to be used to explain the nature of COVID so that people have a little better glimpse as to what may happen to them. Right, That's, thank you. Um, and, and I think, um, as you both mentioned, the, the particulars for any given patient can't be anticipated until you're in the situation. But you can talk about making these decisions in general, and you can start talking about what people are going to want. And, and, you know, it might be very different for a 30-year-old to say, well, you know, this is the, what I'm willing to put up with after than for someone who's 70 or someone who's 80. So um, I think that uh, what you were saying about kind of not only would I want to go on a ventilator or how long I'd want to be on it, but some of that decision is going to be affected by what is the picture like for afterwards. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, with the caveat that, with the caveat, I would add that there are no guarantees to your particular outcome. And when you, um, if I can be so blunt, roll the dice, there's, there's no guarantees. Um, and some people do far better than we expect. And some do far worse. Well, that I think that's a really great way to segue into kind of a broader discussion of about how we have these discussions and how we make these decisions, and especially as Christians, how do we approach these decisions? So, um, I'd like to talk. I'd like to pick up um, kind of Patty, what you were saying about you know, acknowledging that we're frail and that sort of thing. But before we move to that, I want to talk a little bit um, as an ethicist about the permissibility of our choices. Um, and so from a Christian perspective, um, you are allowed to forego care that puts too big of a burden on you for the anticipated benefit. And so what this means is that in theological reflections on medical care, you are not always obliged to do everything you can to stay alive for as long as you can. And one of the big reasons for this is what Patty was saying about recognizing our frailty, recognizing the fact that um, all people die and that ultimately we don't have control over those things. So. Um, so, the, you know, so theologically, um, when you're looking at decisions like this, I think one of the questions that's going to come up for people is, if I'm really sick and the doctors, you know, say I need a ventilator, do I have to take a ventilator? And so, um, uh, Mom and, and Patty, it would, I would then appreciate if you guys could talk a little bit about um, how you would make those decisions, you know, for yourself or how you've seen your patients make those kinds of decisions, um, not so partly from the medical side, but more from the emotionally and the spiritual side and kind of how they weigh, how they weigh those sorts of things. It's the tricky part, isn't it, Brenda? It is. Yeah. Um, because we don't know uh, what the outcome will be. But I I guess I, I look at it from the standpoint of the patient. If, if I'm 90 and um, I have been really housebound and not been able to be 
out and about and I can see my own decline happening. And I know on my life journey that I'm getting toward the end of my life journey. When something like this comes up, very often people will say, perhaps this is when the burden of the treatment outweighs benefit for me. Um, and, and that's probably 85% of the cases that I have when people choose not to treat. But if you're 30, um, it's a whole different ballgame. And, and Brenda, I'm not so sure that a 30-year-old would be allowed not to be vented without perhaps someone at oh. ethics committee coming in, right? Yeah. You're speaking from the American experience and not the Canadian. Um, you are, the American medical system is far more aggressive about its life prolonging and uh, attempting life uh, saving lives than is the Canadian system. And although there might be a question for the 30 year old to reconsider um, uh, legally, uh, the the legal situation is that 30-year-old absolutely, as long as they're mentally competent, has the right to uh, refuse treatment. Um, the question, of course, if they had a family member speaking for them, and we have formal ways that that happens uh, in our legal system, medical system, um, it's not clear that their agent could refuse that care if the physicians thought it was warranted. But in general, Far few of our patients go to ventilator support than in Canada than they do in the U.S. And um, and although I think most 30-year-olds would accept, uh, I I think they would be allowed to refuse. Uh, in the words of a, a judge uh, that set the precedent about 40 years ago in Canada, uh, everyone has the right to go to hell in their own handbasket. <laughs> wow. No, that is not that is not the medical system and, uh, uh, and uh, culture that uh, we have here in the United States. Right, but that's a good reminder that um, these decisions are going to be affected too by where people live. Um, so I kind of want to pivot more to um, kind of how you make how you have these discussions and make these decisions with your family, and especially for Christians. Um, how you start um, thinking about these sorts of things. And so um, I'm going to kind of weigh in on where I think a good starting point would be, but then I'd like everyone, and, and John too, um, uh, to kind of weigh in on what you think are really pertinent um, Christian theological positions um, that will help people make these sorts of decisions, not the particular I want X treatment, but how to think through these decisions in kind of a Christian way. And so one of the, um, the big things that I think is really relevant here is that um, as Christians, we believe that um, our lives aren't our own. They were given to us by God um, as a gift that we, um, that we live out and that we uh, take care of and, and, and treat appropriately, but that we also don't um, we also don't exert complete control over our lives. And so um, when I think about making these sorts of decisions um, from a Christian perspective, I think one of the really important starting points is to recognize that we aren't completely in control. And I don't say that to uh, abandon our responsibilities in in any way right we obviously have a responsibility to think through these things um, carefully uh, to behave responsibly to be attentive uh, to be reasonable um, but at the same time we also recognize that we don't fully control any situation and so when I think about making these decisions, that seems to me to be a really important thing and, and maybe a gift from Christian theology to other people thinking through these um, things that ultimately we aren't in control and that we are most human when we recognize that fact. Um, yeah, I wonder if anyone else, John or mom or Patty, want to share maybe other things that um, 
kind of from the Christian tradition that you think are helpful for people to put them in the right mindset as they think about these decisions? I, one thing I would, I would attach to that is, um, you know, I, one, one thing that, that Stanley Hauerwas will, will say occasionally is that, that Christians are committed to telling the truth. And one, uh, one thing that can make these conversations difficult is a tendency towards denial, certainly, but also euphemism. Um, and I think as from within a sort of Christian frame, um, suffering and death are both core sort of dogmatic elements, right? If you say the Nicene Creed, right, you talk about suffering and death. And you do, you know, you do it as often as you, as you say the creed. Um, and so I think developing habits of truthfulness, and that includes both, both speaking about, but also speaking about in frank ways, um, the, the vulnerability that we possess, right? So not just our sort of um, lack of absolute autonomy over our lives, but also the ways in which being alive um, means encountering inevitably death, but also often uh, suffering of varying degrees, sometimes quite extreme, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes in, in fashions and modes that um, we, we don't have words for or how to know how to speak about or, or certainly want to speak about. Um, but I do think that there's a kind of Christian spiritual discipline of developing a truthfulness about those things. Um, and how to do that, you know, is, is, is going to depend on uh, a whole bunch of different things in different contexts and family cultures and things like that. But I think that's a kind of undergirding principle. Yeah. But, but it's, it's, a, it's kind of hard to have a discussion about whether you want to be on a ventilator if uh, you don't actually recognize that ventilators would ever be necessary or that you might die if right. you do or don't go on one. No, that's right. Mm -hmm. So um, I did a pilot uh, prior to starting the palliative care program in the emergency room. And I picked patients over the age of 80 who had multiple comorbid uh, health issues, meaning they had heart disease, kidney disease, lung disease. And they were in a, with uh, something that was potentially going to end their lives if they didn't have intensive care treatment. So I saw 50 patients and 50% of those patients opted for hospice. And that was over a month period. No one had asked them or explained to them where they were in their life journey. Many people who are dying have absolutely no idea that it's around the corner. Um, and so uh, I think part of the culture, and as Don talked about truth, is number one, and the word I, I used before um, Robin was finitude, not frailty. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and to recognize, that's all right, to recognize our finitude, that we have a beginning and a middle and an end of our lives is fundamental to being human. And so that's where I start when I talk to my patients. We have a beginning and a middle and an end. And often I'll say, I'm at the last third of my life and so are you. But I'm at the first third of the last third of my life. And you're at the last third of the third of your life. And so the decisions that you make are different than they would be for me. Mom, do you have anything that um, you'd like to add in thinking about starting these discussions, you know, specifically from a, from a Christian perspective? No, although I do think again uh, of your comment about uh, people's belief systems sometimes make it difficult for them to hear the truth. Um, and, and it's interesting that uh, people from different aspects of the Christian faith uh, spectrum uh, interact with the medical truth in very different ways. Um, and, and I'll just be blunt and say sometimes those ways, I think, are more of a burden than a help. You don't uh, you don't have to name names, but could you describe the behaviors that you find burdensome? So one of them is that uh, people are very confident that they will be healed 
that they have been promised that they will be healed. And, and so that, I think, comes then to helping people recognize the finitude of life. And it is a little easier when they're, I'm just going to be blunt and ageist and say it's a little easier when they're 92 to convince them that they're probably in the last third, the last third of their lives. Yes. And it's a lot tougher to do when they're 52. Um, and, and if, uh, what should I say? So, so those things make it difficult. And so a number of my patients uh, are expecting a miracle and make their medical choices to have quite aggressive care because they are confident at the end of the day, God's going to cure them of their cancer, for example, which is uh, a common condition in our patient group. Um, and so that influences how they make their decision uh, with it. And then there's the group that uh, trust that God will do whatever he wants with them and have minimal interaction with the medical system. Um, and so perhaps uh, they or their family members miss out on care that have, could have made uh, the quality of their lives better and, and the length of their lives considerably longer. Can we uh, talk a little bit earlier? I think Brenda used the, the language of comfort care. Um, and I, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about just concretely what that might involve. Um, and then Robin, I'd be curious what sort of ethical questions might revolve around questions of comfort care and, and things like that. Um, okay. So in COVID and in the situation where your lungs are badly compromised and the doctors are talking about ventilatory support or refusing that, the choice is probably quite stark between the two extremes of aggressive ICU care on the one end or comfort care allow natural death on the other. For most other medical conditions, I, the ones I deal with every day, uh, there's a lot of choices in between those two extremes. So first, we're going to have to recognize that so that many of my patients will say, well, if I got a pneumonia, I'd still want to come into hospital and have intravenous antibiotics. But I wouldn't go to ICU care. I wouldn't take a ventilator and I wouldn't want you to resuscitate me by chest compressions and shocking my heart and all those other things. Um, so there are lots of kind of levels of choices in between those two stark ends. But if you are looking at your lungs are failing and you are dying without ventilatory, ventilatory support, then you are really looking at the extreme choices of either uh, moving towards that support uh, and fairly and aggressive care, I would consider it, or choosing comfort care. As I tell my patients uh, every time when we have the discussions, we always try to include comfort care in all the other aggressive measures we do but the other aggressive measures do come with their own burden of suffering and their own burden of uh, added symptoms as well as the potential of perhaps just prolonging the dying phase that you have um, but if we're going to talk about comfort care as the euphemism for no life prolonging medical interventions and allowing natural death then what we're looking at is meeting all the person's uh, physical needs of nursing care. So uh, an adequate bed and uh, nursing care support to help them do all the uh, physical needs of their body. Um, and then looking at their medication list to paring it down to what's going to make a difference between now and the end, um, whether that's three days, three weeks, three months, uh, as the estimate, um, and making sure there are medications that address pain, and especially when we're gonna think about uh, COVID, shortness of breath, um, nausea, and another common phenomenon, as we die, most of us develop confusion, uh, brain fog. Our brain becomes overwhelmed with all the things that are going on uh, biochemically, and it doesn't think as well as it should. And sometimes we aren't as awake, but sometimes we're agitated. 
uh, and there are medications that can calm and help uh, patients be comfortable through that. Does that kind of, for you who's non-medical, does that make sense? No, that's great. Thank you. Um, so, if, so, um, you know, I think, I think in particular of the application of, yeah, you know, uh, pain medicine or anti-anxiety things or things like that. Um, Robin, are, are there, do you see ethical issues sort of around, around the, that kind of stuff? Um, I mean, even sort of low level, we think of high level ethical issues, but even just low level eth- ethical issues of, um, you know, am I going to be, am I going to be sleepy all the time? And is that a way I want to spend, you know, my, my last few days or, or weeks, um, or, or, you know, the alternative, right? What, what will I have to endure in order not to be narcotized? Um, I don't know. What do you think? So for sure. So when it comes to making a decision for comfort care, um, different voices kind of, I would say that there's a, um, kind of a longstanding, um, consensus in the Christian tradition with, with some, with definitely some outliers, right? So, um, in general, the, the Christian tradition is kind of, you know, a main union. I'm talking especially here about kind of the Catholic, um, tradition as it's kind of gone through, but, and I mean that not as only just Roman Catholics, but there's huge portions of the Catholic tradition in the, in the Lutheran church. And then even, even within Protestant churches and in the reformed church, you'll find this um, that has generally cited two extremes um, that are often um, what you're saying about control and about maybe not recognizing our finitude. So on the one extreme, there's, um, you know, um, ethicists often challenge the idea that we need to do everything all the time because life is sacred. So you have to prolong life forever and ever and ever. And in general, the Christian Jesus said, no, that's not true. Life isn't sacred. Human beings are sacred and they're sacred because they belong to God. And when they die, they'll return to God. Like we don't have to prolong life itself in each individual person as like a forever and ever mechanically until like, probably because that's of course impossible. Everyone's body will give up. Right. So on the one hand, but on, on the side of the comfort care, um, also as it's just in the Christian tradition are very concerned about despair. Um, so choosing this because um, you don't think life is worth living anymore. And I'm not saying, you know, if you say, and that doesn't include making kind of a reasonable um, decision about what your prognosis or what your life is going to be like after, right? So um, if people say, I don't want a ventilator because I'm clearly coming to the end of my life and you know, even if you put me on it for this pneumonia and then I come off, I'm going to be bed bound. I'm not going to be conscious. Like, you know, that sort of thing that that would be a lot, you know, reasonable. But one of the big things that Christian tradition has always taught against is the intent to death. So recognizing that you are dying and choosing comfort care has always been acceptable in the Christian Christian tradition. And as a matter of fact, there's a whole tradition of, um, kind of death arts, if you will, uh, on, on prayers and, and kind of devotionals on preparing yourself for death. One thing the Christian tradition, you know, ethically has been very concerned with is actually actively choosing it. So saying, I could, I have a good chance of recovery if I went on a ventilator, but I won't do it because I want to die. And that's something ethically that the Christian tradition, um, while recognizing obviously that you you know in these cases they're talking about rat like kind of the rational decision towards death because when when you're talking about um kind of um guilt or ethical responsibility when when people have kind of psychiatric disorders and stuff um that's not really what i'm talking about here i'm talking about people who are otherwise of like sound mind and just choose to work that ends up getting pretty tricky as well um ethically in the christian tradition so um in general Choosing comfort care as you know recognition that that yes you are dying is okay. Um, choosing comfort care because you want to die um, is not. If 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 that distinction makes sense to people, um, when it comes to what level of um, you know pain control you're allowed or what level of kind of sedation that you're allowed, um, that ends up being a very interesting. Um, 
area of discussion in theological ethics, and a lot of it, a lot of the way the discussion is bent depends on what tradition you come from. Um, so that traditions that have often taught that basically you have to suffer to kind of purgate yourself. Yeah. You know, you'll tend to find the theological literature in those, like ethicists in those traditions, often really railing against that idea. Like, yes, you can use all the medicine, all the, because God doesn't demand this kind of intense suffering and sacrifice from you. Whereas traditions that um, have been okay with all sorts of use um, might be very concerned about the fact that everyone's sedated. Um, so that you know, um, so, you know, traditions where maybe it's been allowed to use all that sort of stuff, ethicists will say, well, yes, it is allowed, but also you need to think about, can you participate in last rites, for example, if you're sedated, right? Um, and which, of course, last rites now, of course, that's also a big area where that's changed, right? Um, because last rites doesn't exist as a kind of its own thing. What you have is anointing of the sick, right? Um, and so the, actually the sacramental, um, the sacraments of the church have kind of changed to reflect, um, a different understanding about kind of, you know, end of life confession and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not really an expert on that. Uh, Therese Lysot though has written, um, quite a bit on that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we could put some stuff in the show notes about where people could go for that. So, um, in, you know, other than certain enclaves kind of within, you know, certain denominations or small church groups where that hold views about essentially you have to suffer as much as possible at the end of life um, or uh, groups who will say basically nothing matters. I mean, you do unfortunately find that in certain churches, but in general, the Christian tradition is kind of towed very much a middle line that says um, God does not demand this terrible suffering from us. And so the use of, of medication and comfort care and um, yeah, anti-anxiety medication, pain medication, types of sedation are acceptable. Um, but generally, you know, when ethicists love getting picky, if ethicists are picky, you're going to do those things for the right reasons, not because you don't want to, like, you're ignoring the fact that you're dying or you're ignoring your need for prayer. And, and ethicists get really, like, picky about, you know, exactly um, why you should do those things. But in general, in the Christian tradition, it's recognized that um, the healing arts, um, which include comfort care as well as all of the life-prolonging things, um, are a participation in the healing that God does. And humans, as kind of, you know, creative image of God, do the types of work that God does within the limitations of being human. Um, and so that includes the healing arts, and that includes using um, breakthroughs in, in medicine to be able to help people live well, but also to help people die well. Can we, I want to turn with the time we have left to talk a little bit about, in general, um, in an, in, in, with, with regards to end of life, um, how have uh, both of you seen people's faith, really whatever faith, though, though we can focus on Christianity um, for our purposes, but uh, people's faith figure into not just their decision-making, but their sort of whole uh, experience. And I mean that both in terms of the patient, but also in terms of the, the family systems that those patients are embedded in. Um, what, 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 when it gets down to the nitty-gritty, do you see faith, uh, religion, piety, spirituality? How does it show up for you clinically? It's, it's really, uh, it was really shocking to me the very first time I saw a, a deeply religious man in our church, um, he was dying and I was taking care of him and he was so cynical and he was so angry and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I went to a pastor friend and he said, do you think that maybe you could allow him to be human today? And I said, okay, I got it, right? Um, I always approach um, these kinds of things from the perspective of 
making death be akin to birth. So we labor into life and we labor out. That's usually how I enter into the discussion of comfort care package when we, when we do that. Because I, I said, thank goodness for epidurals and, and uh, medication when we give birth. And it's the same as the, as you said, the healing art of dying when you're dying, to be able to give the same gracious care toward the end. And, and then the question always comes is, well, are they going to die sooner? Or, um, and and when, do you, when are they going to die? And all of those questions, we, we really are very bad at answering. And that's when I always go to God as the determiner of the number of days in our lives. And when we try to predict that, even if we have a patient on comfort care, we're almost always wrong. Almost always wrong. I think that's important for people to hear uh, as patients uh, to, 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 to have a kind of proper uh, epistemological humility on behalf, on behalf of their medical caretakers. Um, because we, we view you as, as experts um, because you are, but we don't always have a good sense of what that expertise concretely means in our concrete case. Um, and so to, it's, I imagine it's helpful to be reminded of, um, you know, how, how complicated these things are and how uncertain, um, and that that uncertainty isn't just over on our side in the bed. We also come into the question of when we have nursing staff that are not in alignment with what the patient wants. So I've seen medications withheld to a dying patient causing extreme suffering because the nurse or the physician did not feel comfortable in giving, for instance, additional morphine or additional Ativan. And that's always a very, very difficult situation to be in. I think to go back to your question, John, about how I see my patients' faith interact uh, with the choices they make and how they go through uh, the challenges of a life-threatening illness, I would echo what your mom says and say that we are all human and that we all have those difficult emotions when we re are faced with the realization that our time is coming to an end. Um, I also think that uh, it, yours was perhaps, again, a bit more of an American question. I am absolutely shocked when I go to American palliative care conferences and they talk about how many patients want to discuss spiritual issues with their physicians. Um, we're, not, we're hardly allowed to say God in this country. Um, and so some of my patients um, have a strong faith. And I think Canadian uh, Christian physicians uh, much more closely hold their cards to their chest than do the American uh, Christian physicians. But uh, I live in a relatively small city and, and word gets about. And so I do have some uh, families that make reference to it um, and, and even invite me uh, to be there uh, if I happen to be there where their priest is, a time their priest is, they invite me in. Or I think of a family whose, whose son in his early 20s died in our palliative care unit. Um, and although they were brokenhearted, they were looking ahead to, uh, to the next life, the next creation that we will be part of, um, and rejoicing that they would all be part of that together again, uh, and that there would be more, no more suffering. And uh, they even invited to me to uh, join in singing a hymn with them. Mm. Uh, yeah. So, which are very special times for me, and especially as I uh, say, because generally in Canada, our religious cards are held much more closely to our chest. Mm -hmm. So um, we're probably running low on time, but if I could ask one thing. We've talked about a whole bunch here. We've talked about, um, you know, but if you were to give advice for, you know, a lot of the people who listen to this podcast are going to be people kind of mine and John's age or a little bit older. Um, you know, some of them like Brian, just like we babes in arms. Um, but can you maybe, you know, we've talked a lot about that 
there is a lot of uncertainty in these things and we don't have a lot of control and we often don't have clear ideas about prognoses and also that, you know, this is an emotional discussion. Um, do you have maybe a few tips for the people who are listening to this about how to start this kind of discussion with their family members about, you know, how, how do they, you know, not just call up, Hey mom and dad, like happy Saturday morning. Just wondering if you're dying tomorrow of COVID, can I like plug you in, unplug you? Um, you know, uh, probably not the best way to start it, except, you know, when I called up mom or, you know, my own parents, given the amount of death we talk about, that's essentially what I did ask. But have you, um, have you, have you, do you remember there's an old Simpsons episode where Homer eats uh, the improperly prepared blowfish <laughs> and he goes to the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, that's, that's it, man. Uh, and he hands him a pamphlet and the top of the pamphlet says, so you're going to die. <laughs> <laughs> That's the subject line of my email to to you guys. So we're um so we're we're gonna actually make a little brochure for all of our listeners, and it's so like you're so you're going to, to die. die, and you can hand it to your parents and see how they react. No, but actually, um, do you you know, mom and Patty, do you have any tips for kind of the people who are gonna be listening to this on how to start these sorts of discussions? You know, and you know, mom, dad, like you know, in a time of COVID, and if you got it, like how how are people gonna kind of broach what is often a very difficult and emotional conversation. And and what questions do they need to make sure they get answered? I, I think for our children to say, I'm worried about you, mom and dad, it's a good beginning because it embraces uh, your parents and, and lets them know that you love them and that you care about the answers to these questions. I would say that would be number one. Number two, um, the things that you uh, would like to have answered, you know, it, there's this, um, there's a kitchen called the kitchen table project where they have this pamphlet where you sit down and you go over scenarios. You're going um, to die. <laughs> and if you're going to die and you're in this situation, what would you want? Sometimes um, that is just a really good primer. Because we, as your mom said, we don't necessarily as lay people know what's going to happen to us. So um, I think you can present it. I'm worried. And if this happens, what would you want? Or what is the thing that worries you the most about if you're dying? What are you the most afraid of? And that was called the kitchen table project. Is that what you said? I I think so. I'm going to... I'll have to get that to you separately and you can put it in, but it's easily Googled and uh, I can get you that URL. Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. I think it's uh, a great place to start and say that with all the news going around about COVID, I worry about you, mom and dad, if you got sick. Um, And also saying, I want to make sure that if you were too sick to make your own decisions, that I know what you would want. And I can make those as you would want. To turn it around, they don't have to say, and I don't want to feel like I signed your death warrant if I say no. But that is how, so any of you older people, in your last third of your lives probably, um, it is devastating for your children to pull the plug and to make the decision for comfort care. And I have had so many people say, when I talk about one parent dying, you know, I had to make the decision for my mom and I feel like I signed her death warrant. I'm sure you must hear that, Patty. Oh, often. Yeah. Mm. So it's really important that, uh, you know, you could say to your mom, that I want to make sure I know what you want so that if you get really sick fast, I can make sure you're getting what you want. And not only that, um, the, it, you don't have to say this to the parent, but really it's also to make sure that there aren't a whole bunch of people in that millennial group or a little older feeling like they let their parents die um, wrongly, incorrectly, that they didn't fight for their dad. I wonder if, I mean, uh, so, so here I want your opinion as parents. Um, it, it may sound selfish, but I, I can imagine um, 
I can imagine a scenario where uh, a, a child, a grown, an adult child says to their parents, um, mom, dad, I'm, I'm worried about you. Um, COVID's made me think about this. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I, I want to know what you would like. And, and out of that parental desire to, to assuage your children's worry, you say, oh, don't worry about me. It'll, I'm sure it'll be fine, right? To try and end the, the conversation, right? Because um, this is uncomfortable and you're uncomfortable and I'm uncomfortable. Everybody's uncomfortable. Um, and Ooh, I, I wonder if it's the best time. <laughs> right? <laughs> um, and I, I wonder if it might actually be helpful for, for grown children, for adult children to say to their parents, um, you know, it would. To, to, to sort of play, that sounds a bit manipulative, but, but because you brought it up, to play on that parental concern, um, to say, you know, I would, I would be just gutted. Um, I would feel devastated if I had to guess and I guessed wrong. Um, and, and it would be a gift to me, your child, who you love so much, um, if, if we could get really, I know it's uncomfortable, but if we could get really clear on this, um, you would spare me suffering. <laughs> um, I don't know if, if that, maybe as parents, that's, uh, that would be that that feels too manipulative <laughs> but no um, john i i use it on patients all the time oh well there we go because i talk about protracted grief and the trauma of losing a parent and what that can inflict upon those who are left behind so mm -hmm. yeah you, i play that card quite often when i get someone pushing back mm -hmm. i think one more because you know when i think about then clinical ethics and and what i've what I see in the clinical ethics world that ethicists generally get called in when there's conflicts. So we tend to be like, we tend to think about conflict before we think about the, the, the things where the times where it goes well. Um, but that, you know, it's important that the whole family is having this discussion as well, because even, even if one, you know, child, say you have siblings, right. Um, you know, and Sally is designated as the decision maker, but then Tommy is super upset with the decisions. Like, um, you can end up then kind of having to have mediation or arbitration or, um, you know, all that sort of thing go on. And um, instead of, and a time that's already so emotionally devastating because you're facing the death of a parent, you also have major internal family conflict. So these are conversations I think people, um, it's also helpful to get clear on who should be making these decisions. Oh, there's obviously legal precedent, right? You know, nearest kin, whatever. But people also have the power to kind of name who's going to make decisions. But as much as possible to involve your whole family in these discussions so that everyone, it's not just like Sally being like, yeah, but mom and dad told me they wanted this. And then, you know, to me, like, they never said that to me. I don't think that's what they would want, to, you know. Um, if you can kind of have all parents, I guess that would be like the ultimate troll though, is like you could tell each of your children a different thing. Dark. Wow. <laughs> oh, that would be very, very creatively mean. Yeah, that would be really, <laughs> just really add to the whole pandemic right the there. The long con. Um, Woo. Yeah. And Robin, because divorce in my um, mm -hmm. generation set is so common, or that people remarry, and because we're living longer, they remain remarry at 70. Mm -hmm. How many bedsides have I stood with the, the children of uh, the patient and his mm. wife? And, and the wife has power of attorney over health care and the kids don't. Right. And the conflict it causes both parties. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it happened to me last weekend and it was so, and it was so sad because it causes these primal really primal emotions to come to the table and i always say it well you're normal that's that's what i always congratulations congratulations you're normal and we see this often but it doesn't mean that the pain and the biting words that can happen don't so i i tell my patients to have a second wife um or a second husband to please include the entire family on these discussions so you don't have that family splitting. That's right. Everybody uh, make a Zoom room and pour a glass of wine, get everybody in, talk through it. Plus with the pandemic um, social distancing, no one will actually be throwing glasses of wine at you only at their own computer. That's so. right.
Look at that. Global pandemics healing all family relationships since 2020. <laughs> That's right. Um, I want to mention a book uh, written by uh, someone who's from the San Francisco Bay Area by the name of Katie Butler. And she wrote a book called The Art of Dying Well. And um, it's very, she's a lay person, but she's written this book very, very well. I hate the title. Um, because uh, when I think of death, I don't think of anything well at all. But uh, it it is a it takes you through the different stages of life as you age and the decisions that you need to make ahead of time. And um, uh, I, I think it's very worthwhile. It's it's available on Amazon. And it's uh, if if you just Google Katie Butler K A T Y, you'll find her. And she's written two books on. The topic and and she really brings it down into layman's terms which i appreciated thank you that's great well thank you both so much for joining us um i think this is going to be a really helpful conversation for a lot of people and um then that's our show thank you for listening out there um we really appreciate it if you uh, have questions or comments for us you can find us on twitter at systematic pod you can send us an email, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. Um, we have a Patreon. We have a tiny bit of overhead in terms of web hosting and things like that. And if you would, wanted to help contribute to maintenance of the show, um, that's uh, patreon.com slash systematically. And uh, our intro and outro music is, as ever, track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. Go out there. Well, don't go out there. Stay in there. Wash your hands. Stop touching your face. And be intelligent.